Lord God, Heavenly Father, you call workers into your harvest field for your harvest is plentiful. Though we look around and see that our world seems to be crumbling and falling further away from you, yet you promise in your word that your work is not complete and your kingdom will continue to flourish and grow. So teach us. Teach us to see with the eyes of faith that you are a God who is living and active in your word and your sacraments. Teach us to be witnesses of that love and your mercy that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord to everyone that we encounter in our lives and that we might continue to shine the light of Christ wherever you have called us to be. And as we gather this morning to rejoice in your gifts of word and sacrament here in this place, we also gather now around your word, especially this word of John. And we pray that by your spirit you would give us wisdom, that in these words we would see our Savior Jesus. And once again rejoice that you are a God who loves us. In Jesus' name. Okay, so John 3, uh, we're going to be in at verse 21. As I said to, to, uh, to Robin as, as I was working through this text, I said, this is kind of like the Gospel of John in a nutshell. You finish John 3, 16 to 21, which is just explicitly clear, and just about anybody could read it and get the basic meaning out of the words because they're very clear and straightforward. And then you move into a text that um, very, makes very little sense. And this is one of the more difficult passages in the entire gospel, uh, meaning that people read this and, and interpretations are, are extremely varied, um, almost contradictory interpretations, which is really fun. And, I, and I'm talking about the people that I think are good interpreters of the gospel of John, or that would be good, faithful Christians, and they still have wildly different interpretations. So with that introduction, we're about to head into some fun text. Um, so we're going to do our best. Um, I will be explicitly, well, and I, I keep saying that word, I will be open and honest about why I'm interpreting it the way I'm interpreting it, and hopefully you'll see how it flows with that. Um, but just know that there are a lot of, a lot of difficult uh, words and phrases in here that we're not entirely certain what, why John wrote it the way he wrote it. But he did, so there you go. It's fun, isn't it? That's the Gospel of John. It's so easy, and it's so hard. All right, so let's read John 3. Actually, before we get there, any questions from last week? Anything you've been perseverating upon all week that you just wanted to ask? Perseverate. It's a great word. It is a great word. Yes, perseverate. It's spelled just like it sounds, so don't worry about it. Perseverate. Okay, well, let's read John 3, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Selim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. All are going to him. Rough page turn, sorry. This person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him the one who has the bride who has the bride is the bridegroom the 
front of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. See? Clear. All right, thank you. All right, so number one. How does this tie back to what has happened so far? Good. So if you go back to the very beginning of the narrative, John 1.19, it starts, remember 1 through 18 is a prologue, right? An introductory section. The beginning of the actual story of the gospel in 1.19 begins with John the Baptist saying, I am not the Christ. And here he repeats that to his followers who are questioning him or, or questioning what's going on. And he says, you yourselves bear witness to me that I said, I am not the Christ. Okay, one of the things that we've already talked about in the Gospel of John, but you, you discover it as you read it, is that John almost always circles back. If he says something, you can count on him saying it again. So John writes in a circle in all of John's writings. In the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and in Revelation, he's writing in circles. Okay, So when you read something that sounds kind of familiar, it probably is. For this reason, I recommend strongly that one of these days, perhaps today, you set aside a half an hour and you read the Gospel of John in one sitting without stopping. Don't stop, just keep reading. And you will be amazed at how much you will hear phrases and ideas return to you as you read it. You'll be like, I've read that before. He said that before. Yes, he has. And he's doing it on purpose. Okay. Actually, this is one of the best exercises if you want to read any book of the Bible is to sit down and read it without stopping. Don't read it verse by verse or chapter by chapter. I mean, do that too. But at some point in your life, do yourself a favor and read each book of the Bible without stopping. So like sit down and read Galatians. The letters of Paul will take you like 10 minutes. They're not very long, right? But the Gospels will take a little longer. Um... And the Old Testament books will take a little longer too. But, but at some point, sit down, especially with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read them end to end without stopping. And you will see that, that in all the authors, they do this. They, they write in circles. They write, and then they kind of repeat what they said. And they repeat it again, and they build on it. Well, here is a section in which all this stuff in these verses are really just recapitulations or restatements of what's already happened in the Gospel. That's really all it is. And, and the question is, why? What's the point of that? Also, we are going to realize that everything that ties back points ahead to something else. Okay, so it's a circle that not only goes back, it also goes forward. So the first thing we see is that if you look at verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to Judean countryside. Now, he's already in Judea. He's already in Jerusalem for the Passover, but now he's moving out of the city into the countryside. Okay? Now, if you go back to John chapter 1, you realize that starting verse 19, look at verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Okay? So, 
Verse 24, now they had been sent him from the Pharisees. The Pharisees lived in Jerusalem. So again, we have the same movement from in the city of Jerusalem to the Judean countryside. Now Jesus is going to move from Jerusalem to the Judean countryside. And what's going to happen when he does that? Baptisms. Where? Where John the Baptist is baptizing. Okay, so you see what's going on? We're just recapitulating the scene. John is repeating the scene. He's bringing us back to John the Baptist's baptism, but now he's added something. The first time this happened, what did John the Baptist call Jesus? If you're looking in the Bible, 129, what does he he call him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So... Remember, taking away the sins of the world. Take away sins. What are they discussing? What does this passage say they're discussing? Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over... Purification. Purification is what? It's the ceremonial thing to take away sins or your uncleanness, right? So what happens in Levitical law, remember we've talked about this before, in Levitical law, oh boy, you guys remember this? You know what I'm about to draw? Because I don't at this point. I'm scared to death. All right, in Levitical law, what is that? Do you recognize that? That's the tabernacle. That's not the Ten Commandments. Come on. How can you think that's the Ten Commandments? Right. That's the tabernacle, right? So this is the Holy of Holies. And who lives there? Uh, Yahweh. Okay, and this is the holy place. Who goes there? The priests. Who goes here? Only the high priest and only (laughs) once a year. And he's got stuff tied to him because if he dies in there, you can't even go in and get him. Right? So you tie tie a, a string to his foot. So if he falls over dead, what do you do? You pull them out. It ain't going in there no matter what, even if he dies, okay? And so then you have around here, what do you have? This is the courtyard, okay? This is the courtyard, and this is where sacrifices occur, and, and some priests can go here, but not, not all. And in order to go in here, you got to purify. you got Moses and Aaron hanging out here at the gate, right, to make sure nobody gets in, lest they die. And then you have the Levites that live around here. And then you have Israel, right? You have the 12 tribes of Israel. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. This is the holy people of God. Now, if you are unclean, where do you go? Out, right? So if, uh, if you're unclean and you're a member of Issachar, right? And you're chilling down here with all your Issachar brothers and you do something unclean, you got to go out because you got to get further away from God lest he kills you. So in order to get back into your, your camp where your tribe is, you have to go through ritual purification. Now, once you're here, you still got to get past the Levites so you can go into the holy the, the courtyard to offer your sacrifices. What do you do to do that? Purification. 
and then you offer your sacrifice. Why are you offering sacrifice? Purification. See, what's happening is, is you, do you ever get here? No. Uh-uh. You knew, knew, knew. Do you ever get here? Uh-uh. Nope. You occasionally get here, but not very often. If you're going to get all the way to God, what do you need? You need an intercessor. We'll be a savior. Right. You need an intercessor to bear the blood of the sacrifice on your behalf so the holy God doesn't see you as a sinner, but one who is covered by blood. And so when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, who's going to be a sacrifice, who takes away the sin of the world. So this, this Yahweh in the person of Jesus, the Holy of Holy dwelling among His people, it's not, he did not come. What did we learn last week in 3.17? I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He comes among his people not to destroy them, but to save them. And so this, this passage is bringing us back to this idea of purification, back to this idea of John the Baptist standing and saying, I'm not the Christ, but there is a Christ who's here, and he's here in order to save. Okay? He's here to be, this is the fun part, this entire system. He is Israel, the people of God. He is that in one person. He is the priesthood, offering sacrifices to God. He is the tabernacle where God dwells in the midst of men. He is the entire sacrificial system that makes a sinner clean before a holy God. And the second half of the gospel will help us understand that he is, in fact, Yahweh. He's the whole thing. Right? So this this little, this little, you know, Jesus and disciples within the countryside remain there is baptizing, all this kind of stuff. This is all getting us to understand that the witness of the gospel so far is to show us that Jesus is this entire system. He's the entire thing. He is the code of holiness. He is the Levitical law. He is the priesthood. He is the sacrifice. He is Yahweh in the midst of his people. Okay? Now, did you get all that from chapters 1, 2, and 3? No. So keep reading. Right? There's more to come. But that's not the only thing going on in these verses. There's more. Believe it or not. Okay? So that's one tie back. What else? We got baptism brought up. Baptism is not just John the Baptist in Jordan, but he also in chapter 3, remember in chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, what does that sound like to you? Baptism, right? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So now all of a sudden we have another discussion of baptism. And what's the issue? The issue is that the disciples of John... John the who? Baptizer, right? The baptizing John guy. The guy who's known for baptizing. 
They say, hey, John, this Jesus guy is baptizing more than you and everyone's going after him. You're losing your business. You're losing your reputation. The whole reason you're here, you're the Baptist. That's your name. And yet they're going after him instead. What are you going to do about that? And what does John say? I'm going to encourage them to go. Because I'm only here to witness to him. And they go, well, we signed on to be your disciples. What do we do? And he said, follow him. I must decrease and he must increase. Now that sounds easy, but this is not easy for a sinner to say, it isn't about me at all. It's all about him. But this is John. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. One of the things that the Gospel of John presents to us is the question of who is a faithful witness? Remember, last week we talked about this. Life and death are at stake. Not just life and death meaning you could fall over dead tomorrow. Eternal life and death are at stake. Right? And according to John chapter 20, believing the correct thing is what results in eternal life. Also in John 3, right? Believing the correct thing results in eternal life. Rejecting the truth results in death, eternal death. So you best be believing the truth, which means you might want to figure out who's telling the truth. Yeah? You got to know who to listen to. You guys don't seem impressed by that. That's a big point. You should just realize that at this point. That's, that's a big point. So what's going to happen is John, the, the author John, not John the Baptist John, the author John, the guy who wrote the Gospel John, he is presenting to us faithful witnesses. He's saying, you can listen to that guy. You can listen to that guy. And pretty soon he's going to say, don't listen to those people and don't listen to that guy and never listen to him because he's a father of lies and he's been a murderer since the beginning. Don't listen to him. Who's that? Satan. So I don't ever want to hear anybody in this room saying, oh, I'm just playing the devil's advocate. No, you never advocate for the devil. Ever. Right? I heard the strangest thing today from the pulpit. Did you hear it? Pastor said it's okay to have potlucks. I said, I'm not for either pot nor luck. What's up with that? All right. So, everybody got that? So what's happening is John the Baptist, John the baptizing John guy, he continues to be a faithful witness. When the rubber meets the road and it's about him or Jesus, who does he choose? Jesus. That's a faithful witness. That's a faithful witness. Did you hear in the the gospel reading today? Luke chapter 10 says this. He who listens to you listens to me. He who hears you hears me. And he who receives you receives the one who sent you. What? You see what that's saying? Is that when you are bearing witness to, to Christ, when you are bearing witness to Christ, where does all the focus go? To Christ. You are but a witness. Right? 
And all of us are too scared to witness because we're so scared that we can't live up to what we're witnessing. And the answer is, you're right, you can't. So don't bear witness to yourself. Bear witness to Christ. All right? Bear witness to Christ and, and the amazing things that God has done. Just let everyone know what God has done. That's all you're doing. They say, well, what about you? You say, what about me? I'm one who needs this amazing love of God as much as anybody else in this world, right? Yeah? Okay, any questions so far? We haven't got to the hard part yet. <laughs> okay, the other thing that is going on that I want to bring out, um, that we're all, this is still number one, by the way. I had lots of other questions written out, but it, just, it looked weird, so I just did all in one question. I don't know why. So, the other thing I want you to, to see is the whole metaphor of marriage. Okay? This entire metaphor of marriage. In John chapter 2, the beginning of John chapter 2, on the third day, they go to what? A wedding at Cana. John, or Jesus and his disciples, were there. Kind of like it starts this section, Jesus and his disciples, right? So the whole thing is about marriage. Now, who's the groom? If God is the groom, who's the bride? God is the groom and his people are the bride. And one of the ways to read the scripture is that this is a large book about the groom loving his bride. That's all it is. This entire book is a narrative of the groom loving his bride. Who are you? Are you God? Okay, so that kind of leaves only one other option. You are to be the bride. Would you like to be loved perfectly forever? Would you like to be loved perfectly forever? Yes. Good news, it's done. God loves you perfectly forever. If you mess up, what does God do? He loves you perfectly forever. Does he say, I will love you perfectly forever if you love with certain expectations? No. He just looks at you and he goes, I love you forever. And you say, prove it. And he says, done. Right? You never have to doubt God's love for you. Not for one second. You can bring all of your yeah buts if you want. And he's going to say, we'll take all those things. We'll nail it to the cross and we'll say you are loved. Yeah, but I'm a sinner. Yeah, I know. Okay. Bigger than sin. God's love for you, bigger than sin. Bigger than death. Bigger than the devil. Bigger than the world. Yeah? That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus means. That God loves you as a groom loves his bride, and nothing can change that. Okay? So John says this. This is the worst page turn in the history of study Bibles, isn't it? So then he says, oh, this is just weird. 
the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And they're like, okay. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So who is John the Baptist? He's the friend of the bridegroom. Now, y'all know what the friend of the bridegroom is, right? It's the best man. And what's the job of the best man? What's that? He's sent there to serve the groom. How does the bridegroom, how does the best man serve the groom? He witnesses what? The purity of the bride. The best man's job is to make sure the bride stays pure until the bridegroom receives her. That's his job. You like that? That's actually the job of the best friend of the bridegroom is to get the bride to the groom pure and holy. And then when the bridegroom receives his holy and pure bride, what does he do? Go to Genesis chapter 2. I will try my best to not make any bad jokes. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Genesis chapter 2, verse Now, is your Bible, does that look like the rest of the, the words around that? No, it's set off like it's a song or it's poetry. What happens when the bridegroom sees his bride? He can't help himself. He sings. He rejoices. It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You, you. See, see, but here's the thing. I don't know if you guys remember back, back in the day when you loved each other. And she was the prettiest thing you've ever seen in your whole stinking life. Right? And, and you, you literally couldn't contain yourself. You were, it was just, it would kill you just to be with her. Just to sit and talk to her, to hold her hand, to look her in the eyes, to spend any second with her doing anything. Remember that? That's how God rejoices over his church. That's how God rejoices over you. Not in a mushy-gushy love, but in that real, actual love that lasts forever and ever and ever. That's the picture of God and his church. And Jesus has come to find his bride. Now that we're all feeling good, what does she look like when he finally finds her? She's been sleeping around. And he goes, why? Why? I've been faithful to you. Why have you been unfaithful to me? And she says, well, look at all these other gods out there. They're great. I thought they might be able to help me. And he says, well, I, I died for you. I rose for you. I give you the eternal kingdom for free. And she goes, nah. 
eh, I don't want that. I want these gods that I made up. I mean, I, I took the gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came a golden calf. Why not? <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm the God who rescued you. See, and this is, now this is the story. So go back to John chapter 2. Who's missing from the story? There's no bride. The wedding at Cana is missing a bride. You got Jesus and his disciples there. You got Jesus' mom there. You got the servants taking care of the food. You got the headmaster of the feast is there. You got the bridegroom there, but there's no bride. In John chapter 3, we're still looking for a bride. In John chapter 4, we're going to go to a well. What happens at wells? You meet your future bride. Just like Jacob did and Joseph, right? All the way back in the Old Testament. So what, what does he find when he gets to the well? He finds a woman. Yay! What kind of woman? A Samaritan woman. What was wrong with the Samaritans? They intermarried with non-Jewish people. They were unclean. And this one was a bastion of virtue. She'd had five husbands and the one she was living with now was not her husband. So not only was she a Samaritan unclean, but she was not very even good for being a Samaritan. And what does he say to her? If you would know who's talking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Why? Because Jesus did not come to kill his bride, but to give her life. Even when he finds her unclean, unfaithful, unfit, not worthy of his love, what does he do? He dies to save her, to purify her. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're just going to go all over the place today. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25, Ephesians 5.25. Don't get distracted by that verse. Don't get distracted. Just move, skip on past it to 25. Don't pause. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. That word means make her holy having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. See, God comes and loves his bride in such a way that he makes her holy. He sanctifies her. He washes her clean. Right? This is what God does. Okay? Questions so far? Thoughts? I'm just going to show you a couple more things, okay? Hang on. I was just thinking how it corresponds with Hosea. Good. So now if you look at Old Testament illustrations of this, the entire book of Hosea is this story I've just been telling you in one book. 
and Hosea is actually asked to become the groom to an unclean woman to be a physical illustration of God's love for his people. Right? So Hosea marries, this is very confusing for those of you who grew up watching Andy Griffith, but it's okay. He marries who? Gomer, who was not a mechanic. (laughs) She should have been, it would have been better, right? What is she? She's a prostitute. My wife doesn't like that word. She's a prostitute. That's what it says. I know. It doesn't like the ESV. Uh, Okay. So she's a prostitute. And so she marries a prophet. You talk about people looking askance in town. The prophet of Yahweh marries the town prostitute. And he says, God told me to. And they're like, sure he did. So life is good. They have a kid. Name her. Not my people. Um, I wanted to name my daughter Sloan Me, but Robert let me. <laughs> then name the next one, not my loved one. And then what does she do? She goes back and she sells herself again as a prostitute. And Hosea says to God, are you kidding me? You told me to marry her. Now look what she's done. And what does God say to Hosea? Go get her. She is your bride. Go get her and bring her home and treat her like the bride of yours that she is. And Hosea says, are you out of your mind? And he says, this is how I love my people. This is how I love my people. I don't love them because they deserve it. I don't love them because they are holy. I love them in such a way that I make them holy. I love them in such a way that I make them my people. And they cannot depart from that love. They can't. Even if they try to, I refuse to stop loving them. That's what Yahweh says. That's the book of Hosea. So at the end of the book, this child who is named not my people becomes named... They change the name. They tear off the not and they just call them my people. And God says, that's the way it goes. You act like you're not my people, but because of my love, I will make you my people. And you used to be called not my loved one, but I will, I will change your name to my loved one. Why? Because of my love. Not because of you, but because of my love. Okay, so go to Jeremiah. While we're running around the Old Testament. Jeremiah. It's a pretty easy book to find because it's large. After Isaiah. So after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Okay? Jeremiah 31. This is just one of those verses you've got to have memorized in your head or at least know where to find it. Jeremiah 31, 31. It's easy. Jeremiah 31, 31. It's always good. So when I ask you a question out of the Old Testament, just say, I don't know. Go to Jeremiah 31, 31 and start reading. I'm like, oh, see, that's what it says. Okay, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. See? Who broke the covenant? Not the groom, but the bride. God faithful 
even when his people stray. This is the message throughout the Old Testament is that God's love is unfailing. It's steadfast. And now John the Baptist is saying, I'm just a friend friend of the bridegroom. The real bridegroom is here. And who is that? That's Jesus. So what does he say? Therefore, since the bridegroom is here, I'm his best friend. What's my role? I've now given the bride to the groom. And what do I do? I step back. Because the party is not for the friend of the bridegroom. We're here to celebrate the groom and the bride. Right? And that's exactly what John the Baptist is saying is, I'm out. It's now his party. So everything goes to Jesus. And that's how you, that's why he is a faithful witness because he says everything to Jesus. Everything. Okay? Old Testament, is it important anymore? Come on, people, don't be scared. No. It's not. Because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. John the Baptist, is he important anymore? No, he's done his job. He's pointing us to Jesus. So now, do you read the Old Testament as the Word of God? Yes, because it points you to Jesus. Right? See, it doesn't stand on its own. It points us to Jesus. That's the job of the entire scriptures. What does the New Testament do? Points to Jesus. See? And that's why we don't worship this book. We believe it's the inspired and errant word of God. There's nothing wrong with it because God wrote it, right? The Holy Spirit wrote it. But he didn't write it for you to worship the book. He wrote it for you to get to Jesus. That's the job of the scriptures. That's what John the Baptist does. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so number two. That was fun. Number two. Who is important? Jesus. Jesus. The bridegroom. Not the friend of the bridegroom. Who else is important? The bride. Right? Don't forget that the whole point of Jesus is to love the bride. So the bride must be pretty... Important. Important enough for God to die. So now we're going to talk about, for the rest of the book and really for the New Testament, we're going to talk about these two things. We're going to talk about Jesus as the lover, the one who loves, and we're going to talk about the people whom he came to love. Now here's here's the big thing for you to work on for the rest of your life. Don't confuse the two. Which one are you? Number three. Who are you? You're the bride. You are not the groom. I know that sounds easy, but it's not as easy as you think. Because pretty soon, you'll find yourself thinking things like, well, God is not living up to my expectations of what he's supposed to be doing. He should be doing it this way. That's what we mean when we say, well, if God is a God of love, he certainly would not. And then we label what he should do because we've got it all figured out. And what we have done is we've stopped being the bride and we started being the groom. 
Now here's the other thing. Just, this is just something for you guys to think about. I don't want to spend the rest of the time on this. We might, but I don't want to. Um, this is just an issue that has arisen in our day. So we're going to talk about it briefly. And Pastor Bonick is back there in charge of pastoral ed, so if I get anything wrong, he'll correct me. We do not ordain women. Do you know what that means? The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod does not believe that it is proper for a female to be a pastor. I submit that this passage is one of the reasons. Because who's the groom? Jesus. Who's the bride? The church. Who's your pastor when he stands in front of you and forgives your sins? He's acting like he is Jesus. Now, hold on a second. I know your brains are going a thousand miles an hour. It's okay. Just keep going with me. If, if the pastor is a female and the bride is a female, what happens? Is that a man and a woman? No, it's a woman and a woman. What do you call that? Homosexuality. Now, just just hang on a second. It's okay. We're okay. I just want, just trust me on this for a second. Just trust me. And Pastor Bonnet can back, back me up on this. I do not know of any church body. That doesn't mean it's not out there. I just don't know of any church body that has embraced women's ordination and has not also embraced homosexuality. Why? Because in order to read scriptures to allow women's ordination, you have to get rid of the same principles that allow you to eventually, they will lead you to accept homosexuality. Because the scriptures are very clear that in all of these things, That's scripture. It's there from Genesis through Revelation and back again. Why? Hold on, we're not there yet. Why? Why what? Why is that the? Why is it that way? Because God created man in His image, not woman. Yeah. Well, we created them both. Genesis 126 created man in his image, both man and woman, he made them. So that doesn't quite work. It's close. Because marriage is a reflection of Christ. Yeah, but why? Why this? Why not man and man or woman and woman? It's not that hard, people. Procreation. Yeah, you can't have kids otherwise. This whole thing kind of ends quickly. If Adam and Eve can't reproduce, what happens? The Bible ends in Genesis 3. We're done. You're not here. Okay? So, so part of this is that we, we can't forget the, the whole narrative. And, and I'm not just saying this. This is actually Paul's argument in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Right? This is actually the argument of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he discusses 
who can speak in church, who can teach in church, and the pastoral office, is actually, this is his argument. And he even brings up childbearing. Okay? Yeah, go ahead. Get a concern. It's fine. We're all friends here. You're not flipping it back. So you're not saying if, 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 so the bride is all of God's people, so uh-huh. some of those are men. So that That's right. Like the man. So I'm a woman. So in this cosmology of how God sees the church, every male is the bride. It's still, it's still male and male. Right. So that's why we have to keep the metaphor going, is that the church as a whole is the bride. Who's the groom? Jesus always. So what he has done in the scriptures is told us that man, a physical man, is supposed to represent in this cosmology the person of Christ, who was a physical male. Okay? And the bride is always metaphorically the church. And this is actually true even in Ephesians 5. This is really fun. In Ephesians 5, it says... This whole thing about marriage is really just a metaphor about Christ and his church. That's what Paul says. This whole marriage idea, it's just a metaphor. That's all it is between Christ and his church. And then Paul says, however, since you are married, you ought to live this way. I'm not kidding. That's what it says in Ephesians 5. The whole love your wife and love your husband, Paul says, it's just a metaphor for Christ and the church. But... Husbands should love their wives and wives should respect their husbands. See, and so what happens is we actually seek to live this out in the way we do things. And as Pastor talked about in in the sermon today, we do this in two different kingdoms. We do this in two different realms in our life. We do it physically in our marriages. We also do it spiritually in the church. And historically, this is why the church has always and only ordained men. This is one of the reasons. There are other reasons, but this is one of the main reasons. Pastor? Any? This time I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> For once, good. <laughs> but it, it's, I know it's hard. I know it doesn't make sense to your minds, and that's fine. This is a tough one. But I just want you to be aware that this is a major battle in the Christian church today. And it really does come down to are you going to trust the words of Scripture? even if society disagrees with them. And the same thing gets to be true with other issues that are a day in which people are saying, you can't say that sin anymore. And the question for each one of us is, am I going to allow society or scripture to teach me truth? Right? It's tough. It is hard. That means there's going to be a day when this church gets in trouble because we're going to say, no, we don't do that here. They're going to say, but everyone's doing it. We're going to say, no, the word of God says. And we're going to stand on that. And they're going to say, we're going to close your doors. We're going to take away your tax exempt status. And we go, it doesn't change what the word of God says. Right? I don't get to choose God's truth. That's not who I am. I don't, I don't have that right. Does that make sense? And that's really, that's kind of what we're facing, people. 
is that we are being we are being told that in order to be nice, you have to compromise the word of God. That's not nice. We have to bear witness to Christ and his truth. And these are tough things. And I'm happy to talk to you guys about it afterwards if you want to. It is a very difficult discussion. Like I said, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But it's just one of these things that kind of put it in the back of your head as you read through things. Okay. Any other questions? Roger. Is that part of there's no male or female in heaven, no giving of marriage? Well, there is male and female. It doesn't say there's not male and female. There's not a distinction. You will be like the angels in which you will not be given or taken in marriage. There will be one husband and one bride. So we didn't go there. Revelation 21, Jesus says, I will now show you the bride of Christ. And he points to the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. So the bride of Christ is the church. So that is the marriage feast of heaven. It's Christ and the church. It's not us individual people, right? But it's the bride of Christ and Christ. That's the marriage feast. Okay, since we read Luke, we're gonna we're just not gonna get very far today. Since you read Luke this morning, right? Our gospel reading was Luke. Check this out. There is a marriage feast in heaven, and it's because the son who was dead is alive. What what is that from? What story is that from? Where the father throws a feast and he says, Come eat, because my son was dead, but now he's alive the prodigal son and the older brother's outside saying I ain't rejoicing I'm not coming to your party sometime just entertain me sometime read through the Bible especially the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke or just choose one of them and read through it with this in mind God is the awkward teenager throwing a party that no one wants to come to God is the one who's downstairs in base with a bunch of balloons and confetti and it's just he and his mom sitting there. Because no one of his friends want to come to his party. This happens over and over and over the gospel. Jesus says, well, the father throws a party, a wedding feast for his son and no one came. He even sent out invitations and no one came. So he went out and he found people he didn't even like, invited them and they also didn't want to come. They're like, we don't come to your party. So he went out and he invited the people who have nowhere better to be because no one likes them. The other rejects. And he said, would you come to my party? And I said, well, it's either that or starve to death. And he said, I'll at least feed you. I'll give you free. He bribes them. Come to his party. And then even they don't want to be there. Isn't that a weird story? Over and over and over, Jesus says, God is throwing a party and nobody wants to come. We all want our own party. We don't want to go to God's party. So here's the question. Do you want to go to the party that God the Father throws because his son was dead and is alive again? Do you want a feast that lasts forever and ever and ever and the only thing result is bliss and happiness and love and peace and joy? You want that? Well, it's yours. It's done. It's free. It's there. That's the party. Right? So the part of this whole narrative in the Gospel of John, it does resolve or revolve around this idea of a feast. So in John chapter 2, he goes to a wedding feast. 
and they're out of wine. The party is over. And so Jesus makes it a brand new feast. Right? And we're going to watch through the Gospel of John how Jesus continues to say, that was fine, I've got something better. Okay? Let's read quickly, 31 through 36. I'm going to read it, just because I feel like reading today. Who, he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, so number four. Who comes from heaven? Jesus. Okay. Now, hold on. Who else comes from heaven? The Spirit. How do you get the Spirit? Through Jesus. How do you believe in Jesus? Through the Spirit. Who gives you the Spirit? Jesus. Who gives you Jesus? The Father. Who gives the Spirit for Jesus to give to you? The Father. How can you believe in the Father? Through Jesus. How can you believe in Jesus? Through the Spirit. Who gives you the Spirit? Jesus. Who gives the Spirit to Jesus so He can give it to you? The Father. Do you remember the Athanasian Creed? It wasn't that long ago, was it? See, this is part of the beauty of the witness of the New Testament is which part of the Trinity, which person in the Trinity loves you? All. Does the Father love you? Does the Son love you? Does the Spirit love you? Which part of the Trinity, which person in the Trinity works to save you? The Father? What does He do? He sends His Son. What does the Son do? He dies. What does the Spirit do? He gives you faith. So, is there any part of God that doesn't love you? No. The, the entire Trinity loves you. Every action to save you, Father, Son, Spirit. You are not supposed to picture God like the Father is really upset with you and he's, he's got the Ten Commandments, he's making a list, he's checking it twice, and Jesus is going, don't be mean, I really like them. And the Spirit's going, love, love. That's actually not the picture of the Trinity you want, right? That's actually the popular picture of the Trinity, but it's not the one in the Bible. The one in the Bible is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in your salvation. All of them. You are loved by God. Fully. Without reservation. And you can't mess it up. I promise. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Teach us to walk in that love that we might live our lives as the bride of Christ, fully loved. And teach us to witness that love to everybody that we talk to.
that they too might know the love of the one true God, the love that lasts forever. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.